Hi guys, thank you for tuning in to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I just want to briefly introduce this and say that some of the sound quality during this episode from Mike was a bit on the low side, but I think I've taken out the bits that are really poor quality and kept in the bits where you can just about make out what Mike's saying, so please bear with it. And there are some higher quality bits in there as well. So enjoy the episode, guys. Cheers. Hi guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. We have got the first official Q&A with Dr. Mike Isretel, and he is really looking forward to answering your questions. We had a ton of questions through, and we will be trying to cover as many as possible. If your question doesn't get asked, don't not ask it again. Uh, we will be picking kind of the most popular or the most well-written, the most interesting questions that Mike probably hasn't maybe covered a million times before. Uh, would be the best. So I've split them up into training, nutrition, supplementation, and then any general ones. We'll start off with nutrition. And is that all okay with you, Mike? Yeah. Sweet. So we have, uh, and I apologize in advance, guys, if I pronounce these names badly, like just don't take it to heart because some of these names are, yeah. So the first one is Corentin Clement, uh, who has asked, and as a powerlifter, do you think that weekly undulating periodization is better than block periodization for an intermediate lifter since he can probably add some weight to his lift every three weeks or so um only i prefaced it saying he hadn't read the book so i remember you had kind of two to three months kind of spent on hypertrophy three to four months on strength and then one to two months on peaking for a power lifter from what i remember in the book um but yeah what do you think of weekly undulating periodization mike well, I'll get pedantic real quick, and then I'll come back down to earth. So, there is no such thing as weekly undulating periodization. That's uh, uh, the, the the term uh, for that would be microcycle to microcycle alterations in volume load. It is a component of programming, not periodization. Uh, Doctor Stone would uh, be very pissed if. If I didn't say that, so I have to say that. Um, you know, different manipulators are not called periodization. Periodization is the manipulation of training over the grand scheme. And the fine details are a component of program. Right? So can you program in such a way that prioritizes uh, different qualities? You could ask week to week. Um, you very, very few people at and it violates a couple of uh, small well, some pretty big principles but not in any big ways a, a big problem with uh, undulating or altering volume loads and, and I assume he means kind of training goals or hypertrophy one week and strength the next and I'm not sure what you'd put on week three maybe a recovery week or something and then keep going is it um, it violates a sub principle of specificity called directed adaptation. And you'll tend to notice, uh, and a lot of people have been saying this lately as well, that when you do a similar kind of training for a while, weeks and weeks and weeks, you really get into the groove and you're able to present an overload. And then you kind of retain a lot more after you stop doing that training versus like if you're just changing stuff all the time. So, you know, if you're going from hypertrophy one week to strength the next week, you know, so like, how much size can you put on in a week? Uh, not much. 
Um, and then how much neural architecture can you work on and muscle architecture can you improve in one week of strength training? Uh, the answer is probably not much. And you're also holding some fatigue over from the last week of hypertrophy. And then if you go back to hypertrophy after that, you undo a lot of that neural adaptation. There's different technique required for the different uh, phases, and you never quite catch on to that technique. So it's kind of a way to keep training always so new that you, you're always your uh, the body systems are always uh, unable to really meaningfully and progressively adapt to them. So I would say weekly undulating periodization is probably not the best way to go if you want to put that term like that. Should you manipulate volume loads over the course of weeks? Yes, of course. And every program manipulates volume loads over the course of weeks. Every microcycle itself should be manipulated within the week. There should be distinct periods of load uh, or just overload at all or recovery sessions. That's how daily undulating periodization, quote unquote, works. It works very well. And all advanced coaches do that. But over the course of weeks, you probably want to focus on on improving certain qualities rather than switching back and forth between qualities. So it's a very small issue. It's still great training because, mm -hmm. you know, phase potentiation is really what we're talking about here is the variable. And it's only responsible for a small fraction of uh, results. But if you change stuff kind of all the time, you don't really catch any traction. And for a variety of reasons, you're essentially canceling out various adaptations. You're always training hard, and that's always really good. But you never do quite uh, get any traction. And the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of people manipulate within the week quite significantly, and they do very well. Most people manipulate over the course of mesocycle to mesocycle as far as goals are concerned. But weekly is something you'd almost never see anyone do. And, and, at, a, and at a high level, uh, it's just, uh, it's really difficult to comprehend. I think that, you know, lifting at a higher level kind of allows you to see some things that are maybe a little bit opaque to people lifting at slightly less of their developmental capacity. Because people say, like, you know, guys on drugs can get away with stupid training, and that's absolutely true. Uh, guys who just started out a lot of times grow even faster than guys on drugs, and they can get away with stupid training mm -hmm. too. So you, when, when you become more advanced, you start to see realistic constraints. Like uh, I could just bring up, you know, somebody like Chad Wesley Smith, for example. Um you know, for him to get into the groove of heavy low bar squatting, he can't just take a week off every other week to do high bar squatting for reps. It's a completely different movement at that level. And you're going to, it's basically relearning the exercise every single time. You don't build any momentum like that. Mm -hmm. A similar analogy would be can you cut for a week and mass for a week? Hypothetically, yes. But you just spend a lot of time shuffling around with glycogen and not, maybe not doing much of anything else. And, you know, we have good reason to believe that mass, muscle mass gains, they're not just people say, you know, protein accretion is what gains muscle. But it's not like protein just adds up like it does at the bottom of your shaker when you're mixing a shake. It literally builds these vastly complex structures, right, uh, called sarcomeres, and uh, they assemble into myofibrils. I mean, this is big architecture, and it doesn't just happen overnight and a lot of the support architecture takes days and probably weeks to develop so if you just switch from hypertrophy to strength all the time you may actually find that both get significantly compromised significantly being the scientific sense of detectably but not huge difference um i i would just recommend uh a, you know a daily undulating periodization as a base and then within those weeks for mesocycle at a time 
and several mesocycles of a big priority strung together. So like hypertrophy should be composed of several mesocycles of daily undulated periodization training with its focus on hypertrophy. And then you take another several mesocycles to work on strength and another mesocycle or two to work on peaking. And I think it's probably the best way to go about it. So it'd be curious to see if eventually we learn that uh, weekly undulating periodization works really great. If it does, I'd personally be very surprised. So mm-hmm. that's my best answer to that question. I think I've only seen a maybe one study in which it was done on they quoted it as intermediate females doing a weekly undulating periodization model versus a linear one and they saw slightly better progress i mean um, i've seen that study and the people are barely trained and they train yeah. so little and the, 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 whatever there's so people you can dra- drag into the lab mm-hmm. i really particularly uninterested in studies like, like that it'll prove a damn thing unfortunately um, very very underpowered studies that have significant flaws so these are not athletes who are working out um, Mm-hmm. These are undergrads you dragged into a lab and made them do stuff. And it's very difficult to tell what it is, in fact, that was going on. So, for example, if you uh, alternate hypertrophy and strength, you actually get a significant reduction in fatigue during strength because hypertrophy is more fatiguing. So one group will just accumulate less fatigue. And if you test them at the end of a month, that group will look like it's doing better. But the adaptation rate might even be worse. It's just they didn't accumulate as much fatigue. Mm-hmm. So what they did last might actually be the, the biggest difference if they did a strength last or hypertrophy last or something like that. And, and and with people who are not very advanced, they probably shouldn't be doing long, dedicated strength phases. And if I remember that study, these girls did a long, dedicated strength phase after a hypertrophy phase, and they probably lost some lean tissue or just didn't gain a whole lot, whereas the girls that did either or either or just kept gaining. Yeah. Uh, I just think that the, the best way to do it would be to have the girls run hypertrophy phases that are three months long and strength phases that are three weeks long and then repeat that until they're actually jacked and then it's, it's meaningful to run longer strength phases. So you could probably run a pure hypertrophy program that beats both groups on hypertrophy and strength. So mm-hmm. uh, very limited study. So I'd keep that with a big grain of salt. Cool. Yeah, that's what I love when, because having looked at studies myself, I kind of like that the the takeaway was like oh weekly was looking really good but then having spoken to you more and more and realizing especially with training studies the the length of them is really important and um even look i remember looking into that study and the whole training setup wasn't particularly great anyway so cool uh so we'll go on to the next question from steven caserta so he has asked what are your thoughts on tempo training and where do they fit within the training? So I guess with tempo training, that's kind of like um, how much you slow down the eccentric, the concentric, the isometric kind of thing. So what I do is actually just describe what I think drill training is. And then we can talk about potentially to deviate from. So general pace training should be a controlled eccentric. So intentionally a little slower than can go down. And the reason for that is we want Explore muscles, probably having to come back from the way down, generate some more and some more work. Because you can miss a centric phase, you just bounce it out. Right? Like these guys do pull ups and just kind of release and then pull up and then release. Or people using deadlifts for hypertrophy will just drop them after every single uh, rep. Uh, you know, that's, you're missing out on half the work. We also know that eccentric training is particularly damaging, particularly inflammatory and particularly prone to cause hypertrophic responses. So control eccentric is great from a perspective of enhancing gains. It's also great from a perspective of safety. And when you see someone like dumping the bar uh, to themselves, and it becomes a little disconcerting because you're like, you're just going to get hurt like that, right? So we want to control eccentric, maybe 
two secondary centric. And there's some good data to show that there's more muscle, there's definitely more muscle activity, and more power output, and potentially more hypertrophy from fast concentric, right? Uh, two second or so eccentric on most exercises as a base is a great start because you're being making more safe and you're making it more effective by exploding back to that eccentric load. Concentric should be rapid, maybe not fastest thing you can ever do, but rapid because you get full motor you recruitment that way. And it might actually get a little more hypertrophy. You can maximize forces on the way up, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So that, that's the standard way to lift weights. When you're doing tempo training, and like with, I don't want to say quirky things because tempo training is not super quirky, but anything where you where you um, move away from conventional approaches, you have to justify that. The conventional approach that works and is very well reasoned doesn't have to justify why it works because it's already done so. So a lot of people say, you know, uh, oh, you know, there's many different ways to train. They're all great. Well, I'd like to know why, right? So there is one way of tempo training that has clear potential benefit, and that's taking, uh, you know, and elongating the eccentric phase that doesn't actually tend to cause, I don't think, any more muscle damage than a standard eccentric, but it does provide variation, and it can be used pretty extensively when you do a slow eccentric and a full pause and then return. It can be done in times when you are not so, for other reasons, you may be more prone to injury, and or injury would be highly disadvantageous, because like every time we lift weights, we expose ourselves to injury potential. If you get hurt, like balls deep in the off season, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters. It sucks, but like you take a couple of weeks of light training, blah, blah, blah. But if you get hurt three weeks out of a bodybuilding show or a powerlifting meet, especially a bodybuilding show, that really sucks. It really throws you off your game. So you can use intentionally slow eccentrics and full pauses to do some trick work. But the full pauses really, really reduce the peak forces of the activity because the Highest forces most lifts are seen at the rebound point. And you do that full pause, maybe one or two second pause, and then you come back up. That is the kind of tempo work that I see is probably the most effective. Now, the research on what kind of, how many seconds up and down, you know, works best, you know, they basically shown pretty convincingly that if it gets longer than about six or eight seconds uh, on, on the set, you're starting to reduce force, force output and you're probably just not getting as many gains. Uh, less than that, and it's probably a statistical power artifact of studies, uh, and or it doesn't matter that much. So I guess my conclusion with tempo training is you can slow things down every now and again, especially in the eccentric, especially pausing to make a movement safer. Other than that, I'm not, not aware of any ways in which it's more advantageous to do so, other than, other than pure variation. Mm-hmm. So if you're just switching it up, that's totally cool, then it'll be effective. But I don't think there's anything magical about any particular kinds of tempos. Mm-hmm. I think some people think it's that time under tension and they think they're providing more time under tension by doing it, but they're actually probably fatiguing themselves so much that they can't do as many reps as if they did it the way you described the two seconds down and then explosive up. So It turns out to be the same time under tension either way. You just do more reps or you do fewer reps and it takes more time. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Ooh, so next question is from Zaffa. Not even going to try that last name who asks deeper squats are better for quad hypertrophy, but my high bar full depth is 20% um, lower than his PL squat uh, and his front squats are even lower than that. So he's asking basically at which point does a drop 
in the intensity cancel out the added range of motion benefits and i guess there's also the benefit of variation there as well it's not just random range of motion it's also the actual weight the load distribution is handled more by your quads i think that it's a if it's a compound barbell or machine movement and it activates your quads a lot and well, that it's worth it, even if the load is dropped. And the load is probably dropped because your quads are small and the rest of you is bigger and stronger. So when you are doing low bar squats, the reason you can low bar squat so much more is because your back and your glutes and your hamstrings are probably a lot stronger than your quads. And the reason you take this big jump from low bar to high bar is because your quads are now forced to be the limiting factor and they are not that great. And then front squats are even lower because it's really all quads and are not that great. Front squats, I'm not a gigantic fan of. Uh, high bar squats are the best. And squats, leg presses, etc. I think it's well worth the trade-off because the relative loading to the quads is still higher in those. And if it wasn't higher, you'd be able to you know, do just as much weight with them. It wouldn't be uh, diminished by them. And as far as a range of motion, uh, you can get just as good of a range of motion uh, in general the whole movement with low with low bar squats as you can with high bar you just dunk a low bar all the way down but the way high bar is angled it's actually more range of motion for your quads but it's less optimal angle and thus the force at the bar is lower but the force at the quads and at those tendons is probably higher so yeah it's actually worth it and i would say that so it's a kind of like it's a it's a relationship that follows itself you say but what if there's a person whose high bar squat is like 50% of the low bar squat, wouldn't it make sense for them to use low bar because it's so much more forceful? Well, the automatic question is, why is their high bar suck so much? Well, it's because their quads are weak. Well, then fuck the quads, man. Get after them. Do high bar. <laughs> so the answer is, do high bar in almost all cases if you want big quads. And front squats for hypertrophy are a terrible idea in most cases because you're going to choke yourself to death or your chest will collapse before you get reps. It's basically like an artificially uncomfortable way of squatting. Nobody likes on squat so uncomfortable doing this as much as they are high bar quads. And the loading on the quads, I would say, is not much greater. It's almost always a limited factor in front squats. It's going to end up being your technique. Your elbows are going to drop. Your chest is going to cave in. Your back might even give out. And you actually, for high reps, you can't even breathe. So for uh, low reps, the movement is actually a little bit less stable. You tend to follow the technique more. So the kind of forces you're going to generate with front squats are not as good as they are with back squats. Weightlifters don't actually use front squats to get strong. That's what they use high bar squats for. Front squats are practicing the movement that you're going to actually be doing in competition. It's good to do some limit weights, but mostly just to practice limit weights with the, with the front squat. The main go-to strength exercise is the high bar back squat. And those are the people that front squat in their fucking sport. So when people say, oh, I'm going to do for a lot of front squats to bring up my quads, I think there's better options, to be completely honest. Um, I think the high bar, close stance uh, squats with your knees flared out a lot, it's really hard to beat that as a quad hypertrophy tool. And then you can use half squats and leg presses to fill in the rest. And front squats beat up your joints too. The thing is, I actually like front squats, and I'm very good at them. I just I think that they're, they're because of those limits of stability and those limits of breathing and technique that they're uh, they're not that great of a transfer movement to, to performance. I don't think they improve much of anything. I think they're just a way of showing off how you got stronger in other things. Mm -hmm. So actually, on a related point because I know you like to vary it for hypertrophy kind of block to block. Um, if kind of high bar squats are your go-to hypertrophy movement for quads, 
what would you kind of switch them with would you then put in a leg press or a hack squat would you combine them in the same block how would you do that or maybe like a lunge variety is have you got any what, what's what sport are we training so if, say just general hypertrophy so like a bodybuilding yeah so what i personally do is i'll have blocks I make high bar squatting my name I'll go pretty heavy sets of eight or something like that. I'll have, you know, after that, I'll go to leg presses or hack squats, um, and I'll make that my main priority movement, although I almost never do leg presses or hack squats just by themselves. The second movement of that day is almost always either a lunge variation or another kind of squatting variation, usually more high bar squats, just lighter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'll do that. So I'll do uh, really, really heavy squats, and then I'll go light presses and or hack squats lighter. Then my intermediate exercise after that, the next mile cycle is oftentimes close stance high bar squats. Or lately I've taken a fund, uh, I've taken a liking to doing those on a Smith machine, really letting the knees come forward, of course, keeping the heels on the ground. There's videos of me online doing those. Mm-hmm. And they translate really well to potentiating for another round of high bar squatting. So I'll go um, basically leg press uh, slash hack squat as the main movement. Then I'll go next mesocycle. I'll go as the close stance feet forward uh, Smith machine squat as the main movement. And then I'll go traditional high bar squat in the main movement. But only one of those mesocycles do I take completely off from high bar squatting. And even that doesn't always happen. So light high bar squatting is like bread and butter to me. Okay. I kind of do it all the time. Mm. You just prioritize it or put it to the back. Totally, totally, totally. And, and a lot of times I'll put in lunges. Once every couple of mesocycles, I'll put in lunges, usually as a secondary movement. Cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's interesting. Um, so we covered off all the training questions. We're on to nutrition. And we've got Wisdom Vassella, who's asked, Dr. Mike, you said muscle is harder to gain than it is to maintain. Thus, it's easy to keep on once you have it. So why then would we need to hold weight after a massing phase? Why can't we proceed straight into cutting? So yeah, we I know generally you go massing, maintain, and then you can cut. And I know we talked slightly about that set point theory. I don't know if mm-hmm. that comes into it. Because it, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty simple answer. Muscle is really easy to maintain much easier to maintain once you've settled into maintaining it when you make new gains they're actually not very easy to maintain here's a very good example of that they've shown that beginners after detraining so when they stop training they lose their gains really fast the more advanced you get the more resistant to losses you actually get so if you have somebody like Greg Knuckles or Chad Wesley Smith or you know one of the Lillibridges take like a month off of lifting, they're going to look damn near the same after a month. And they're going to train for two weeks and look as good as they ever did. They're going to be as big as they ever did. You take someone who's been lifting a month, give them a month off of lifting, and they'll have nothing to show for it. I mean literally nothing. Right? They'll lose everything they've ever gotten. So – Based on that, I think my personal hypothesis is that new muscle tissue behaves in that manner. So when you gain new muscle tissue, my view and certainly my experience has been that it behaves – so if you have got muscle tissue that's three months old, it behaves like the overall gains of someone who's only trained for three months. It needs some time to stick in there and hang around before it becomes resistant to getting sloughed off during a cut. So that's my reasoning after gaining – Hold it for a bit. We don't know how long. I made a post about this earlier recently. Um, Maybe about a month. Anything less than a month, for sure, anything less than two weeks is probably just a deload and just really not. 
hold your weight for a little bit, then it's probably a good idea to start cutting. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, so next question is from Trevor Fulbright, who has asked, if someone's main goal is to spend a few years trying to gain as much muscle as possible, is there any detriment to shorter yet harder cutting phases versus longer yet less severe calorie restricted phases in order to get back to massing as soon as possible? assuming you have no performance orientated goals looming during the cutting phase. So kind of, I don't know if you've heard of mini cuts, kind of aggressive periods of dieting uh, to get in and out of that deficit as soon as possible. I think it's fine. I think it's not a bad idea at all, especially if you're, uh, you know, uh, if you're taking proper maintenance phases after masses, the cutting after, if you're not trying to cut for a show or for your best appearance, can actually result in a little bit of muscle loss, but you gain all that muscle back and then some after you stop. Um, I wouldn't go that far, but I, but but certainly you should uh, you can be interested. You can be cutting if it's a shorter cut. You can go pretty aggressively because you don't have to worry about burning out. Cut's going to be over soon. Mm -hmm. And if your goal is to just lose a bit of enough fat to resensitize for growth, I think that's totally fine. Um, it's when you're starting to cut for a show or something like that, that you really need to start being concerned about not going too fast up, up mm -hmm. front. So I think that's fine. I think as high as 1% of body weight per week is, is a, a very decent idea on those. Whereas 1% a week in a bodybuilding cut, oh man, that'd be a little much, you know? So if you weigh like 200 pounds, you know, uh, you can potentially cut two pounds a week for eight weeks down 16 pounds that's a shitload of lost fat when you mm -hmm. go back through the massing phases but if you've got a bodybuilding show and you want to compete around 160 170 pounds and you weigh 200 you know you need longer time and nice and slower to make sure that you don't look flat that you didn't lose any muscle and that you're really really good at the date of the competition and in that actually to touch on that because i really like these mini cuts and i found them to be really helpful for me during kind of my off season as it were mm -hmm. you can get back to massing quick uh, would you maybe, for a contest bodybuilding phase, kind of do that mini cut, then take a maintenance phase, and then go slower? Could that be a potential approach you take? As long as your maintenance phase is enough time, and in uh, to to really get rid of diet fatigue that you have built up, okay. and we got to be really honest about that. That some people, you know, they'll be really ranted on Facebook before. Oh, that was a really long time ago that I ranted about this. Is that people start in, in the fitness journey, and about three months start training? Some dumb motherfucker talks about doing a show, and oh, I want to do a show. It's great. You are twenty-four weeks out from a show because you haven't been training long enough, and you're too fat and not jacked enough. So you're really going to one-shot diet that, and the number of people that have burnt out completely from the sport by one-shot dieting like crazy for one show rebounding like crazy and saying they never want to do it again is like Jesus, there's people are everywhere, right? So a really good idea is if you think you're in pretty good shape, buy it for two months to get in really good shape, then take two whole months of maintenance. You won't get much fatter and you won't get much leaner. And do some lower volume training. Then especially in that first month, you can your volume a second then you may legitimately be 16 weeks out from a show because you're already pretty lean and then you really start chiseling. But if you look like total shit, don't, there's no show. Forget about the show. Get lean first, then let your body recover and then mm -hmm. start thinking about shows. Thinking about a bodybuilding show, 
you should look pretty crisp before you even start preparing for one. If you don't look crisp, you need regular standard dieting blocks. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have said this. Um, if you can see your abs, you're ready to start dieting for a show. If you can't see your abs, the show diet is not supposed to reveal them. Another mm-hmm. diet is supposed to reveal them. The show diet is supposed to crisp them up for you like crazy. Awesome. Yeah, I love that approach. I think far too many people don't respect how long it takes to get really lean. I don't think they realize how much fat you really hold. Like, it's everywhere. It's in every little crevice. It's between every little muscle fiber and every kind of, like, to get your quads to come out, to get your glutes to come out, takes a long, long time. So, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, So, next question is from Kate Ann, who's asked, long as one consumed omega-3s from fish, is it okay for an active female to eat very low fat, say around 10% or better, 0.1 gram per pound year round because she prefers carbs if she's eating a nutrient-dense diet and feels subjectively great? And I know you previously recommended not going below 0.3 grams per pound for a sustained period of time, so this sounds quite low. You know, so that three is to make sure that people get in all their essential fats. And if you're supplementing omega-3s and omega-6s, uh, I would say that the other thing you need to make sure to do, Kate, is to uh, make sure your saturated fat intake is extant, that it's there, and there's some of it, because that probably has something to do with hormonal levels, etc. Um, can I guarantee you that that is is a good idea or close to an optimal idea, I cannot do that. Would I be highly concerned that you are trading off big big chunks of optimality? I would not be highly concerned. Probably 90-10, a totally fine idea. Just make sure that you're eating plenty, you're getting enough saturated fat, and on top of that, getting your two versions of polyunsaturates that are essential. Do you get those? We have all the reason to believe that you'll be just fine um, if you really like carbs that much. Um, I know, I actually know Kate, so, you know, all the pumpkin and stuff that she eats and potatoes and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, if you really like eating that stuff and you want to trade away some fats, I think as long as you get saturated polys uh, and, and you both your essentials, then, then I, I, you should be okay. Mm-hmm. Um Try it for some months and be honest with yourself. Low-fat diets, sometimes people get hormonal drops and they just don't feel like that great. Their gains aren't that great. So be honest. Um, For me personally, even if I supplement, anything below 45 grams of fat, I just feel like shit and that's it. Um, but anything, you know, above 60 for me is like pretty much extra, right? Uh, so for some people they have different ranges, just, uh, there's no good reason to believe you're not going to be okay. Give it a shot. Be honest with yourself and see how it goes. Cool. And just out of interest, would that change at all when you're kind of in a calorie deficit versus a calorie surplus? Would it, would that calorie deficit make it more dangerous potentially or would it not impact it? Cause it's just, I don't think it would impact it. And I think being in a calorie surplus and eating like that is damn near impossible because how the fuck are you going to get a calorie surplus, just protein and carbs? I mean, you can't just lean protein sources. I don't know if anyone's ever gained any weight, keeping their fats under 30 grams total per day. And I mean that now, could you hypothetically? Yeah, maybe you'd probably tear your insides up with all that fiber and fucking pro- I don't even know what would happen, man. I, it's something I'm not intended on trying ever. <laughs> Just eat lentils. Um, 
So I would think that he just, I think the supply is free to maintenance cutting. And I think, I think it should be okay. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So next question is from Matthias and he has asked for maintenance for a maintenance phase to stabilize your body weight. Will a recomping diet have any drawbacks opposed to eating at maintenance every day? So I guess it would have been nice for a bit more explanation on what a recomping diet is, but I guess most people talk about kind of having a surplus on their training days, a deficit on their kind of non-training days. I guess, yeah, that's kind of what he's going for along the lines of, would that be any worse or better? I think it's irrelevant because I think it's by no means clear that recomping is something that happens in people that have been training for a while. Um, I've pissed away a lot of my own time trying to recomp Mm-hmm. for months at a time uh, one distinct phase was when I stayed the same weight for four months I tracked everything I got stronger uh, you might expect not a damn thing changed um, so I think recomping is a really is a fool's errand outside of the four special conditions which I've listed in previous media that you can recomp, and here they are. You used to eat like shit, now you eat great. You're going to recomp. You're going to increase muscle and lose fat at the same time. You didn't used to train very hard or not at all. You start training hard or you start training for the first time, you're going to recomp. Um, you start taking drugs for the first time or you decide you're done with kitty drugs and you go on to you know, manly drugs. <laughs> and you go from baby doses to, to you know tyrannosaur doses. Then you recomp. But uh, outside of that, uh, I don't think recomping happens to any extent that we would be interested in. Mm-hmm. It, it does certainly happen, but it's so slow. I mean, good God. Yeah. Good luck. You might as well just finish up your maintenance phase without just some cutting or some massing to put on real muscle or lose some real fat. That's, that's my version of the story. I guess I've had some personal experience with it as well, and I just found it so frustrating because the body is – really hard to control at the best of times you can't control the tiny little details to such precise degrees it becomes almost impossible and yeah i just ban my wills like yourself so Agreed. You know, i'm not a big fan of the whole kind of i like recomping on the large scale but not kind of those... that's what we all like yeah <laughs> for sure awesome so we're on to supplementation questions and um, sebastian has asked about citrulline malate for a bodybuilder uh, would you recommend this? I know there's a lot of studies coming out more recently and it's becoming more promising. Has similar benefits to creatine and kind of beta-alanine as well? Beta-alanine is probably good for endurance athletes and people of intermittent endurance, like glycolytic-based athletes like CrossFitters, wrestlers, MMA people. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it has any benefit to bodybuilders, actually. Or it's not really clearly clear demonstrated that it impacts muscle growth, though it does impact athletic performance. Um, citrulline malate needs more research in my view now in a year or two I may actually jump on the bandwagon but I need to see some more data mm-hmm. so can I Can I? am I going to tell you it doesn't work no I can't say that it might work it may very well work and it, some of it looks really promising but when you get to be around sports science for as long as I have I haven't even been around that long you, you get to get really disappointed at promising shit <laughs> leucine uh, supplementation was supposed to change everything uh, and then after that HMB supplementation was supposed to change everything and now all that produced fucking dick so uh, citrulline malate's looking good but let's see where it goes some more studies maybe another couple years of research if somebody puts together a pretty good comprehensive review of the literature 
you know, I'll put you this way. Journals don't publish comprehensive reviews of literature that have like less than a review. There's not enough research. So there's 10 studies, 15 studies, et cetera, 20 studies. Journals let me publish it. As soon as I see one of those pops, and if it's, if it's favorable to create to citrulline malate, I will start to, to recommend it. Mm -hmm. And so above for a bodybuilder, above creatine, is there anything else you particularly kind of have support for? I know I, I, I tend to like to tell people maybe to try betalanine when they're in those more metabolite kind of higher rep ranges but um yeah that's the only two i'm really kind of see as a sports aid apart from caffeine so why would you try betalanine in a metabolite phase my thought is that because it i forget what the the total number of the, the, the time period that it improves performance for but because your reps your sets are taking longer because they're higher reps you may potentially see some kind of aerobic endurance benefits from taking the better alanine but you're not interested in aerobic endurance you're actually interested in the converse you're interested in summing metabolites sequestering metabolites and tissues beta alanine by being a power by by, by supplying uh a powerful buffering system actually makes it more difficult to sum metabolites, which is great if you're running the 800 meter race because you don't feel the metabolites in your legs. But it's completely the opposite of what we want. We actually have to do more reps. We have to generate more fatigue to get the same effect. I think the ideal person for metabolite training is someone with a shitty lactate buffering capacity because they get fucking immediately, they get a huge lactate burn off of five reps. Holy shit, you got metabolite and strength work all the same. You have the op optimal training program, right? So I would say using beta alanine in a metabolite phase, you're just going to have to do more reps to get the same burn. It's the burn we're going for. So beta alanine actually counters that function. Uh, is, it gonna, is it bad for you? it's cool because you can do more work but i'm not entirely sure that that's necessary or meaningful so i would say i'm not really sure where it belongs for bodybuilders creatine belongs stimulants belong if you like to use them whey protein is great casein protein is great just meat replacements in general are very good and uh you know glycemic carbohydrate supplements are good for intro workout for the longer workouts and post workout for replenishment if you train multiple times a day but outside of that man there's just not a lot of shit around um you know omega supplements omega-3 um the healthy fat supplements, they're probably pretty good, especially if your diet is like in a hypocaloric phase. Um, outside of that, you know, it's all pharma after that. So, Okay. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I've never really thought about it in that sense. Give that some thought, thought. Yeah, I just thought the fact it would allow you to do more volume would be a good thing. But obviously, I guess, in a sense, for me, this sounds a bit similar to the fact that as a bodybuilder, being stronger doesn't necessarily mean better. Because if you're stronger, those weights are heavier, that might actually lead to you being unable to do as much volume. So it could actually, just like you think being stronger would be a really, really good thing, there might not be like the better alanine sort of situation. Totally. Maybe. <laughs> totally, maybe. I love it. Um, but yeah, it's, no, it's very interesting. I love it. I absolutely love learning and thinking about new ways of kind of these things because that's sure. why i initially kind of found your stuff and found it interesting because it challenged my preconceived beliefs which is really good well my my pleasure <laughs> <laughs> it's painful but i i got around i got my head around it it helped and i read i read all kinds of shit i don't agree with and i have to rethink my views on stuff all the time cool so yeah next question which is another supplement question is from irash and he's asked do you use caffeine and how do you use it and he had quite a complex kind of, he periodized it and had special doses for every workout, which is very, very precise. Um, 
but I think I know you. I remember you saying your favourite kind of diet beverage was caffeine free. So I I also wondered whether there was kind of a thought process behind that. When I was a teenager, I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. And I was prescribed Adderall, which is a very powerful stimulant for its treatment. The treatment was very successful. However, after several years of using medication, I developed an oversensitization to that medication and all stimulants. And since then, I have been incredibly sensitive to stimulants. It's actually declining, I think, as I that part of my life recedes. So maybe someday I'll be using stimulants. Um, uh, uh, but I take in change. Um, I become unpleasant to myself. I become anxious, nervous, jittery, wired. I don't enjoy any of those things, and I don't use stimulants. Uh, I've used them before in really becoming phases when I really fucked up uh, taking other things, and I needed much more energy in the gym. What I had was green tea, like just one cup of green tea. That shit would like change my whole fucking life. And then when I, that didn't work much anymore, I had like well, half a can of Diet Pepsi or half a bottle. And that was like crazy. So when I was giving that talk in London, actually, since when we showed up, it was like dick in the morning for us and everyone's going to fucking work. I had to, I had to train. So we got off the plane. We dropped off our luggage. I was like, training. And I was, like, asleep, or, like, it must have been, fuck, man, it must have been likely for us. But we're supposed to, but it's depending on them. So I had a, uh, I bought a Red Bull, and I had a Red Bull. I got to the gym, dude, I could fucking see sound. Uh, it wasn't very pleasant, but my workout, I was just like, ah! I was, like, at an anytime fitness uh, in Aldgate, and I was just like, fucking shit up, people probably what this Yankee asshole doing? But uh, it was great when I needed it. But I don't normally like to feel like that, so I don't really take stimulants. Mm-hmm. Um, I answer his question, however. I like the fact that he had a logical structure laid out. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. You get used to stimulants, fact number one. Fact number two, you need them more sometimes than you need them at others. Taking those two things together, you should be periodizing your stimulant use. So when you are in massing mode, don't fucking use stimulants because they make you eat less. When you are on a very serious strength phase, you can use stimulants pre-workout to make sure you lift really heavy weights. When you're in a cutting phase, as the cutting phase goes on, especially if it's long and serious, you should incrementally increase the seriousness of the compounds you're using and also the seriousness of how much you're using. So if you... It, the reason when people start a fat loss phase, drinking 10 cups of coffee a day and three monsters. And you're just like, where the fuck do you go from here? If you start in cutting phase, drinking green tea, you can move on to coffee and Diet Coke. And then after that, you can move on to monsters. And after that, you can buy a supplement like, um, I don't even know if they make it anymore. BSN used to make a supplement called Atrofex. Uh, and there's a bunch of other supplements like that. Like uh, they're not pre-workouts, but they're like um, uh, caffeine supplement or, or stimulant supplements. Like, uh, holy fuck. Dude, that shit, I had I had one of those back at the Arnold like ten years ago. It was like a religious experience. <laughs> I was just like driving a car and I was like, I'm connected to the fucking universe. It was amazing. That shit blows coffee the fuck out of the water. I don't know what they had in it, maybe it was that or something, but that stuff you just don't want it down all the time. That needs to save for the last four weeks before your show or something like that, where you really can't stay awake anyway, your energy sucks, your hunger's crazy, 
venues of the kitchen sink. But as soon as your show is over, or as soon as your long cutting phase is over, taper all for a lot of people just like to quit their stimulants cold turkey or just go to like coffee or whatever we have eggs and then just try to ease up on them for the off season and uh, don't try not to take them in all the time unless you really like them and they don't have really bad effects for you and unless you know you uh, just used to taking them anyway and you have no interest in getting off just just do less right mm-hmm. and, uh, and really quick uh, I do want to within a large scale of your doses, especially if you're used to them, caffeine's very safe. It's not bad for your long-term health. A lot of people get so much fucking grief, like, oh, you're getting coffee, huh? Like, oh, yeah, the fucking lady who's smoking a cigarette have a fucking needle sticking out of my mouth and do the same thing. Like, you know, people get, like, on, on um, people's health cases. I was actually, uh, uh, Dr. Hoffman and I were watching for, like, the 50th time, uh, Dark Knight Returns, uh, a Batman animated movie, which is the fucking greatest uh, thing ever. And Commissioner um, Gordon walks into a store and he's like, buys groceries. And the grocer goes, You laying off the red meat, Jim? And he's like, Jim. Jim Gordon goes, everyone's a doctor. You know, like that was just his response. Because, you know, but, but that comic was written in the 80s when people legitimately thought red meat was going to fucking kill everyone. I mean, red meat was the devil. It was literally responsible for everything. And now we realize that, yeah, while excessive intakes of saturated fats are great, they're not great by like this teeny tiny margin. And red meat can form an absolutely healthy part of almost every diet. Mm-hmm. So just the same way people have this thing about caffeine, like people tell me, and they tell like this especially Renaissance clients, we'll tell our coaches and myself, it's like a, almost like a come to Jesus, like a guilt thing. They're like, now, I, I've taken a lot of stimulants. <laughs> it's like a bad thing. Another question, we literally have this in our questions that we send out for templates of coaching. Can I have coffee on the diet? Because, like, I don't know where the fuck this came from, but you know all these bullshit cleanses and stuff people do? Mm. They're like, eliminate the following 10 foods and you'll be a fucking awesome asshole. And, Coffee, soda, diet soda, anything you love, the sun, eating, <laughs> don't breathe. You know, and, and it's one of those things where coffee's on all those lists. Like, caffeine's on all those lists. Because mm-hmm. caffeine is bad. But there's, like, fucking hundred studies now that caffeine's, like, neurogenerative. Yeah. Or, like, fucking prevents Alzheimer's. So, you know, if you like to drink coffee and take monsters, as long as it's not interfering with your sleep, you're not, like, fucking wigging out all the time, it's totally cool. Just try to eat it logically with what you need to be non-appetite and you need to be jacked up versus mm-hmm. when you could do that shit just because you have a ton of calories coming in yeah no i i completely agree and i had um one of my clients even ask saying oh it's a it's my deload week but i really really want to have coffee in the morning because i'm getting up super early i was like oh like he was Don't like he was like i couldn't he can't have it and i was like just remember the context of your question supplements are like five percent of your results like it's a very small fraction and then you're worrying about periodizing your caffeine intake it's so small if if having that coffee is what you need to get up for the day like don't stress about it you're not like an elite athlete or anything so you don't even need to worry from that angle 100%. cool so yeah that's really interesting i think a lot of people don't think about pre-workouts and things and i think they i've seen people take them in their deloads and i'm just like don't take your pre-workout in a deload why do you need like you'll that, just go in there and yeah it's a bad thing <laughs> I have no idea. Coffee, I can understand it tastes great. It's part of your routine. It lets you think. It wakes you up. But a fucking pre-workout on a deload, it's like, all right, you're going to freak out and do 50%. Holy yeah. shit. Like, you just don't want to be in the gym when you're not in a pre-workout. That's fine. Cool. So, yeah, next question is about from Derek Dixon asking, I see claims made that certain low-temperature processed protein powders are significantly better 
than their regular protein powder counterparts for a meal replacement. Uh, do you have any insight into the validity of these claims? If they're any better, um, they're way more expensive. How can we determine if they're really worth that premium? Yeah, not much. The direct literature on that is very scant. Um, so I don't have much insight. Hypothetically, it could be. We need a lot more literature to say that. I sure as fuck wouldn't spend my money on that shit right now. Uh, just put them from perspective, you cook fucking chicken at really fucking high temperatures, and that motherfucker still gets you jacked. <laughs> so I wouldn't really worry about fucking casein protein that's been processed at high temperatures unless they're fucking taken apart acid. I doubt it. I think you're totally fine. I think it's probably nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. Derek Dixon, I think I followed Derek Dixon on Instagram. <laughs> Your lifts are always very technical, and I shed a tear every time I watch one of your videos. <laughs> and then I scroll down and see somebody doing something stupid, and I get pissed. I throw my phone. It's the usual. So yeah, yeah I, I hope that's a good answer. No, I think so. I think I think it's one of those areas where it's like if you really have the money and you really want to kind of delve into it, maybe. But I think it's similar to that. Like Rocky would have kind of raw eggs because cooking them would somehow destroy the protein. It's kind of like. Really, kind of. Well, funny enough that you bring that up. Raw eggs actually have difficulties digesting, and you absorb a lot more protein when you cook them. Mm. So there could be the reverse argument to be true. And I, there's a little too much naturalistic fallacy stink in this one. Yeah. Like, oh, it's unprocessed. Well, fucking <laughs> go eat trees and see how jacked you get. Like, uh, cooking shit's probably better, and high heat treatment might probably be better, actually. Mm-hmm. And if you have the money, don't buy that shit. Buy uh, hydro, hydrolysate whey and hydrocasein. Um, that shit is a fucking, like, um, Optimum Nutrition has two products. Mm-hmm. Uh, platinum whey, platinum casein. I went on vacation over the summer with my girlfriend. We went... LVIP and shit. So we got some platinum casing weight. I'm telling you, man, that shit is like the fucking crystal of proteins. Actually, on a similar lines, because I know people talk about isolates versus concentrates, and I know the isolated form is basically just has fewer carbs, fewer fat, maybe mm-hmm. very minimal. Mm-hmm. But doesn't the concentrate actually have some additional benefits in terms of? Sure does. Ha- yeah, has the extra carbohydrates and those fats, and they're yep. actually mm-hmm. quite nutritious. Yeah, it sure does. And there's uh, some kinds of uh, other factors that are lost in that treatment process. So um, I'll tell you what, isolate's probably better than concentrate on the net balance, but isolate versus hydro, I mean, fuck. You know, nobody ever, you know, Phil Heath in the sixth Olympia and he took hydro instead of hydro. I'll put it to you that way. By no means clear that there's an advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, get yourself a jug of optimum nutrition, 100% weight goal standard, or, you know, actually we're the company that uh, I help with Grind Nutrition, which actually designed the supplements for, we're going to have a whey product soon. It's going to fucking work well. It's not magical. I'm not going to pimp it out or some shit like that. Uh, um, it's going to work great, you know, so if you want, really want that, it'll be sweet, but just a regular great, uh, mostly isolate protein powder. You can't really do much better than that. Perfect. Uh, we have one more question, and this is in my kind of others category, and it's quite a big question, so we might not get into too much detail, but Emma Green, who is one of my clients, um, has asked, do you think there is any need to be any, are there any differences between females and males in regards to training and nutrition? Um, and I guess if we just can't try and cover off the biggest ones. Yeah. The biggest ones with training and 
notes can handle more relative volume. They can handle harsher progressions. They can handle they can handle higher relative loading. Uh, they can train at a higher percent of RM and still benefit and not get too fatigued. And they recover fatigue like really fast. Mm-hmm. So when you're training females, your progressions can take weeks and weeks and weeks longer than they can for males. The deloads can be kind of like what would still kill a dude, but for females, they can drop fatigue really fast. And the workout uh, situations they can handle, the per session and per week volumes are abysmal. Uh, 25, 30 working sets per week, most females have no problem recovering from. And in addition to that, because of their really fast lactate clearance, and because of the relative small size of muscle fibers, they don't have to rest like three to five minutes between sets usually. They can fucking chop away at it. Upper body curls and uh, I think those are the biggest training differences. Mm-hmm. The biggest diet differences is that women um, seem to be more resistant to fat loss, and uh, both physiologically and psychologically, and both of those are evolutionarily based, no less. And I think that they can benefit from relatively short periods and less aggressive dieting and uh, attack the problem slow and steady. Mm-hmm. Guys can like fucking wake up one day, do a 20-week harsh fucking diet, and get shredded, and be like, ta-da, and then have no problem just doing their normal thing afterwards. Females, 12 weeks of dieting at a time is the most I recommend for almost all females. And I think a lot of females, especially those new to dieting, should diet for eight weeks and take a whole eight-week maintenance for both psychological and physiological healing. So if the body forgets, the mind forgets it's ever dieted, but you're still down five kilos, mm-hmm. and then you hit it again. For males, the do more prolonged phases. So basically, uh, females can't push diet as hard, but they can push training like crazy. Yeah. Men can't push training as hard, but they can push diet like crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I always think with these sort of questions, uh, and because the females, like a lot of it is quite complicated, but if you start with the overarching specific, like the, the principles, like MRV and things, you know, if you're tracking your fatigue, you can just keep pushing volume and it kind of works itself out, or at least that's been my experience, and especially with Emma, I've just Absolutely. we've been able to push it. Um, Women tend to proxy uh, men and training too much because mostly men train. Now, like, luck, historically, now it's changing. Uh, you know, the, the typical situation I've seen that's really unfortunate is 250-pound pretty good lifter guy will bring his girl to the gym with him, and she'll just do everything he does. So she rests like 80 times longer than she needs to, and she's handling one-third the volume load she potentially could, and she deloads twice as often as she needs to. Workouts, especially for females who don't have a lot of muscle yet but have been training for a while, the lighter, smaller ones, they can handle workouts that on paper Steve would kill you and I. We would die. If not once, then over the week for sure. And if not over the week, over a metal cycle. Be like, I'm sorry, is this eight-week progression? Like, uh-huh. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to need a break at week five. Nope, sorry. Also, it's 30 sets per week. You can get a female to do that. She's like, it's great. <laughs> it, a male, like, has one leg hanging off and shit. Looks like, uh, you know, a zombie or something. So um, female and male training partners, I really don't like to see that. Mm-hmm. Like, C- Crystal and I, my girlfriend Crystal... We don't fucking work. We work out together. And since we go to the gym together when she's around and I'm around, but like, uh, you know, we don't fucking trade set for set. First of all, we have to take half a fucking weight off the bar because I'm not as strong as her. <laughs> that was a little joke. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, also the weight shifting. And also I fucking rest longer than she does because for Christ's sake, you know, like. I fucking, you know, like lift more weight, I get more fucking tired. So a lot of that tendency, when women self-pace, 
they mostly solve all the problems. And when you tell them, look, when you're feeling beat up, take a deload, but until then don't. And they just keep fucking climbing and climbing and climbing. But mm-hmm. a lot of times they'll work out with boyfriends and other male people or just male, they'll have male coaches and the male coaches just won't know that much. And it'll just program just the same for them as, as for the, uh, uh, the males. And then, uh, they just, uh, nothing bad happens. And you almost see never, how many times do you see women get injured? They almost mm-hmm. never get injured. They almost never get overreached, overtrained. It's like almost unheard of yeah. because they're almost always undertrained. So, uh, I, you know, women should do much more in the gym, less rest time, more sets, and higher percent of one rep max, and they can push it for longer, do more total sets per week, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, and I guess with the nutritional side, and I, I definitely have experienced it myself with females I've coached, that they, they seem to respond really well to having maybe some refeeds dropped in and diet breaks, things like that. And it just seems to, they kind of, they were, are really responsive to the diet almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, just if you try and go for extent, and a lot of them do go for those extended dieting periods, they maintain for absolutely ages on horribly low calories. And really they just needed that break. Absolutely. Perfect. I think we've covered off all the questions so far. So perfect. Really, really, really interesting. Definitely challenged some of my thoughts and perceptions about better alanine, which is really good. And I hope a lot of people took a lot away from that today. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Mike. doing it today and uh, we'll have another one in two weeks so that'll be perfect so i will do a post for everyone to get their questions across mike will share it and we do this again cheers guys